This is Get Closer, a podcast by the Geneva International Motor Show. In this episode, we get closer to Chris Dinich, a pivotal figure in motorsport and Formula One. After joining Team Lotus in 1982, Chris Dinage was at the heart of the racing world, where he worked shoulder to shoulder with racing legend, Ayrton Senna. Becoming the number one mechanic on his qualifying car and witnessing the triumphs and challenges that unfolded on the track, including his first Grand Prix victory at Astoril in 1985, forever tying him to that iconic moment. Out goes the checkered flag, and Senna has won. Look at it, both hands waving, Swift joy. But Chris Dinage's influence reached far beyond Senna, as throughout his career, his expertise and dedication allowed him to serve as the trusted mechanic for esteemed drivers like Nelson Piquet, Johnny Herbert, Martin Donnelly, and Mika Hakkinen. As the classic Team Lotus team manager, Chris Dinage continues to leave his mark on the automotive industry and Formula One, a testament to the power of perseverance and a lifelong love affair with speed and precision. Hello, Chris. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm sitting in my office um, overlooking my workshop and all the lovely cars that are in it. And that is the Lotus factory, isn't it? That is the classic Team Lotus factory, yes. Which I have had the privilege of having a little walk around and found it absolutely incredible. I don't know how you manage to go there day to day. Does the novelty wear off or do you feel excited all the time when you're there? But sometimes when I go upstairs, even after 40 years and I look at some of the cars up there, and the history and the significance of them. You do have to pinch yourself a little bit. You know, there's cars sitting there which we kind of almost take for granted, but they're world championship winning cars and iconic stuff, especially the, the JVS and the, and the Senna, the Senna cars. It's, a, it's, it's, it's quite a thing, even now. I think, wow, all that stuff. All of the stories, the smell as well. There's something about everything about it that contributes to that nostalgia, isn't it? There is. We, you know, sometimes... You can come in and there'll be a petrol smell. And we came in yesterday. We've just come back from Hockenheim Racing. One of the cars, the gearbox, got really hot. So the whole factory stunk of hot gearbox oil. So that's kind of unpleasant. But then the petrol's got quite a nice smell to it. And then there's exhaust. It's just, a, yeah, that's a, um, it's a cool place to be. So there's a really nice quote on your website that said that you joined Team Lotus in 1982, just after... Angelis won the 82 Austrian Grand Prix, yeah. which was a good couple of days for Lotus. And Bob Dance, who interviewed you in 82, retained his application form complete with his note saying, this guy is worth a try, I reckon. And 40 years on, is it more than 40 years now? Bob has no regrets. That's quite incredible. I don't know how you've got access to that information. <laughs> that is pretty accurate. <laughs> Um, and it's, that's what happened. I wrote letters to Lotus for five years because that's what I wanted to do. So I just kept badgering them and badgering. And then I had an interview once with Peter Collins, which he did it. He conducted it in the corridor and never even gave me a reply. So that was a bit disappointing. So Peter's respect for me isn't immense because of that. Just not even to reply. And then I got a call out of the blue in, from Bob on a Saturday morning. Uh, and I went and had a 
had an interview, and as you say, they wrote they wrote something on the note saying this bloke's worth a try. And then I'm here. That's amazing. And um, never looked back, I assume. Not really. No, I did have a. Um, I've been fortunate as far as I've had a had a go with the Formula One team and with Lotus Motorsport over at, at group headquarters, and um, but the majority of now with Clive at Classic Team Lotus. Yeah, so you have been at Classic Team Lotus. You're the team manager. 28 years you've been there. I have. That's amazing, isn't it? All those years that go by when I'm really having fun. And uh, you spend a lot of time, of course, with the Chapman family. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's been a privilege, really, to um, to do what I like doing. My my hobby has been my career, and working with Clive has been brilliant. It's just, you know, we have, we have a friendship, a great working relationship, and we, we're just celebrating daily almost the, the heritage uh, of, the, of what uh, Guy's father really did um, for motor racing and, and you know, and small small road car, car sports car production. We'll dive into that a little bit more but you have restored more cars than anyone else probably ever, right? That's quite an impressive stat. What sparked that passion? Well, where it started with Clive and Classic Dean Murders and myself he sidled up to me at Team Lotus one day and he said, um, I want to get some of Dad's cars running. And I thought he meant in the, you know, perhaps at the weekends or the evenings. And he said, come for supper. So I went round to, to his home and we had dinner together and it became apparent that it wasn't something that he wanted to do at weekends. He wanted someone to come and actually work on the, the family collection of cars uh, full time. And it was, it was a difficult time for the team. I thought another another year there might not be a team here so this is a good chance a good opportunity for me to stay connected with Lotus stay working on some of the cars which I'd built in in you know in period uh, and when I left there were a few of my colleagues said well what if you can do that for and I felt it was the right thing for me to do at the time and it certainly has proved to be the right thing for me to do and it's been a you know that's it's been 28 years of mainly pretty much good fun restoring and running these incredible cars but some of them only run once there must be so much passion to do that uh we have done cars that have literally run once and then we've tried to get the owners to run them again and they well yeah one day we will one we did jimmy clark's indianapolis winning car and it's owned by ford it's in a museum in detroit with dearborn we did a really really precise restoration on it we took it over to our track I drove it, uh, it went to the festival speed, and I think Dario drove it, Lord March drove it, and I drove it, and it went back to Dearborn, and it's been out on display, but it's never been on the track again since. So that's a shame, but that's what they wanted to do. But then we've done other cars where we're racing them six, seven, eight times a year, so so the contrast is is pretty big. What do you think the cars represent, or what do they represent to you? Uh, They represent to me pretty much my entire working career because when we founded Classic Team Lotus my knowledge was really with current Formula 1 or the time that I'd been involved with it and I didn't really although I was probably meant to I didn't really know very much about the history and the older cars that were pre-me because I'd just been focusing on cars which were relevant to you know each year and when we'd finished with cars at the end of the season we invariably they went into storage and 
we didn't ever do anything with them again. So unlike any other brand or manufacturer, we still have the family connection. So we're still the kind of works team. We have the collection of cars is all the really significant ones because there were lots of cars built each year, but some of them won Grand Prix, some of them won World Championships. So they're still in the collection. And to have those preserved and running, and they are really, all the, all the really significant cars are running. So if we need to display one, take one for a demonstration, or even on occasion we'd still race some of the family cars, they're there to go and be used. It must feel like such a privilege to fire them up. Can you imagine firing them up one thing? I just happen to be in the right place at the right time when I get to drive them. If I had said that to any of my colleagues back in 1983, one day I'm going to drive that, or even in, in 1978 when I first went to a Grand Prix and sat on the stands with a couple of mates watching the Belgium Grand Prix, if I'd said to them, one day I want to drive both those cars, they were, you know, we would have just laughed. It's incredible. It's like watching uh, watching it now for me and thinking that that could even be, you know, it's just an impossible consideration, isn't it? It's pretty unique. And there's, a, I think there's five or six cars from the Team Lotus International period that I haven't driven. And the guys from over the road, the PR team were over here six months ago and we were just chatting and Alistair introduced me to his guests as, you know, Chris has driven more Lotus than everybody else. And I said, well, actually, Alistair, it's more Lotus racing cars. And he said, well, what about Esprit, Elise, Exige, Europa, Allowed? What about all those? And I thought, well, actually, yeah, there's... I've driven most of the road cars as well, so... Do you have a favourite? Is that even a possible question? I have a favourite, which is the, the Lotus 97 which Elio and Ayrton raced um, in 1985. I built it, Ayrton won his first Grand Prix in it. So that is really my favourite because of the personal connection to it. Is it the prettiest? No, probably not. In terms of the cars I've driven, very proper racing cars, it's by far and away the fastest and it's the most, it's the most fun, amazing thing to drive. So that's my favourite. Whether it's the prettiest, or and it, I'm not sure about that, and I don't think it probably is. But We'll go into more detail about your uh, incredible history and links with the likes of Senna, but on that, is that also your favourite car in the museum, or is that different, and, and why? Um, well, if I have lots of favourites, <laughs> then the 72 is iconic. The 79 was just black beauty. It was It's a beautiful car, the 91 car that Elio won in the day before I started is the most elegant so there's there's lots of beautiful cars the 25 is a beautiful simple looking car and it's so tiny to have just if you've only got to have one favorite it has to be has to be in the 97. So you have obviously worked with some of the most incredibly talented drivers over the years you were also number one mechanic for PK, Herbert, Martin Donnelly, Mika Hakkinen, and of course you work very closely with Ayrton Senna. We'll, we'll go into detail about the actual drivers themselves, but are there any particular drivers who stood out as being especially memorable for you? I think they're all special guys and they all had they all had different different personalities which which made them different for each other Ayrton was definitely the most fa- focused without doubt and he brought a new level of driver focus to formula one that that formula one had never seen before and now it's it's kind of accepted that if you don't have that level of focus on your diet your exercise you're not going to win they have to have that now 
Ayrton brought that and he had this ability to drive a racing car as fast if not faster than anybody else he was only using half of his mental and physical capacity so he was so aware of the other things which were going on around him with who was behind him who was in front where he was on the track what his tyre situation was where his aero balance was he just was aware of everything and when he got out of the car it was the same he'd come into the garage and he would stay until late into the evening just talking to the engineers and to the mechanics and looking at the car and then he'd go and have a wander up the pit lane and he'd chat to some of the other mechanics which to them seemed like a social but what he was really doing was just having a look at what they were doing with their wing angles and with their gurney flaps and with their ride height it was just dialed into everything that he could to make his car go quicker. I feel like he really paved the way for that level of focus that you speak of as well, that like we do see in the more modern drivers. But do you see it, if you look at the the more modern lineup, do you see that edge in any of these drivers? Is there that extra edge that Ayrton had? I think he was the instigator of that. And he was the first one really who had a controlled diet he had a controlled exercise regime so that he didn't build up massive strength that he toned his muscles and his arms and his legs and his body for reflex his actions were can be were controlled rather than total brute strength i think they all do that now but they certainly didn't you know when i started people like elio and kiki rosberg you know rosberg put a cigarette out on the grid just before he got into the car in monte carlo uh, maybe Elio didn't do it in public, but he'd smoke cigarettes. And they, you know, they now that would be just unheard of. And they have this regime of their diet and their fitness. They have someone with them 24 um, 7, as, as, as you know, with Rupert. So it, it is different, but I think it started with Ayrton. You must have seen the reactions then from the other drivers to him. And I wonder how he coped with that um i don't think Ian had very much trouble coping with anything he was very very focused he was very single-minded he had a hundred percent belief in his capability and mika was another one like that mika was when when mika came we up it's this guy and the only person that mika had any respect for was Ayrton. and with Ayrton, when he came in the early days the only person he had any respect for was prost you know, he he saw that as the benchmark and he believed that he was better. And I think Mika likewise saw Ayrton as the benchmark and he was gonna he was gonna go after him. And probably Lewis did the same thing. Lewis came in and looked at where the and Fernando was the benchmark and Lewis were well, all gonna go after him. You know, that first year was the McLaren experienced something they'd never experienced before when Ron had two Ron always had two top line drivers. But I think he underestimated <laughs> what was going to happen in, when was it, 2007, 2008, whenever that was. I think Ron estimated what he got himself into there because Lewis wasn't going to sit down and just take, will you back off, Sonny? You're the new boy on the on the block. He wasn't going to handle that. So I think uh, I think that level of de- dedication started with Ayrton and it's it's in set now with, uh, with all of them. I think they have to. Did you find that that, infiltrated around the team around him uh well we were very much a one number one driver team we were quite keen on having derek drive for us in 85 uh 86 sorry um and Ayrton was very very much opposed to that i think he'd seen the facilities that we had 
he'd definitely seen the facilities that McLaren had and he'd probably seen Williams as well. And we were relatively a small team. You know, we, we didn't keep up with the rest of the pack in terms of facility. We extended it and we expanded it, but it wasn't, we didn't have the same manufacturing capability that, that Ferrari and McLaren and Williams had. I think Ayrton saw for the three years, the first two years, he knew how Lotus worked and he knew that there was a really strong chance, especially with Gerard as well with us, that we had a, you know, we had what it needed to make that top team. And I think when we introduced Honda and active suspension in 1987, he saw that as that that was going to make the difference. And had they not introduced control tyres, almost certainly would have. And we, we had a car which was going to be able to run quicker, longer, faster on softer tyres. And that would, you know, that would have just increased our lap times, but they changed the rules on tyres. So we all had to, we had to use the same tyres. Our car was quite as good aerodynamically, so it wasn't quite as fuel efficient um, as the Williams. So we, we lost out on it. Yeah, we were, prim- we were primarily a one, one number one driver team and now someone else in support because um, we didn't have the resource that, that McLaren and perhaps Williams had. It's incredible. It must be so incredible to look back. I mean, I can't even obviously begin to imagine what it was like to work with or be around someone like Ayrton Senna. And you have that history. Ah, right place, right time. You know, he came on board when he arrived. He was ill over the winter when he signed the contract in, I guess, in late 84. He was ill and he had Bell's palsy. So he came to the factory for some promo photo shots with old team and to see his car and and his face was was in trouble because it had dropped and you know there were there were concerns that is he going to be okay but he he managed to overcome that um, in time for the start of the season and initially Elio and him got on really well I don't think Elio had really anticipated how much how much effect it would have on him because he just you know over the course of the year he just slowly round Elio down to it you know he was it, Elio was a good Formula 1 driver but it was better he was faster and over the course of the 16 races that started to show on, on Elio to the point where at the end of it he, he went off to Brabham. Did you ever see any doubt in Senna? No, no he just he turned up on day one and he made friends with everybody he went round the factory, the home base factory as well as the races and he made himself connect with everybody because he was, you know, we we didn't get that with Mansell at all. And we didn't get it with Elio very much, especially at the factory. At the track, Elio was very much on the side. Uh, Mansell was very different and had a, a real talent for making himself unpopular with people. Elio wasn't like that at all, but he didn't come to the factory. But Ayrton would come to the factory regularly and engage with people. So he was on side. You know, we were young men. The people in the factory were young guys and, 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 and women who, when the, when the driver comes, it's a big deal. And he made a bit of time and he found space and found time for everybody just to have a chat. And I'll say he was personal friends with everybody and knew everybody's name, but he made himself connect. So then automatically, as a, as a team member, you want to do a little bit more for him because he was, he was making the effort. And again, I think that that's something that has sort of been passed down by through the generations, hasn't it? Whereas, you know, like you say, the the likes of, um, not, did you get on well with Nigel? No. <laughs> what was it that made him such hard work? <laughs> uh, he was he didn't have very 
much mechanical sympathy, so he broke a lot of things, and it was never his fault. He always blamed the team for, you know, it, it was never anything to do with Nigel when things went wrong. And, it, you know, after a while, it does frustrate you. You know, we sent him up the hill at Goodwood at the Festival Speed with a car, which we said to him beforehand, Nigel, there's no front wings on it. Uh, you're not going to have the grip that you would have. It's purely a demonstration. So just, especially at Morgan, first corner, first proper left-hand corner, just take it easy. And next thing is there's a red flag and he's in the straw bales. And then he blamed the team. Well, the team took the wings off and didn't tell me. That's just not true. So he didn't, yeah, he didn't have the interpersonnel skills. I mean, amazingly fast driver, just you know, and, and as quick as as anyone on their day. But to um, to get the team to bond around you wasn't um, wasn't something which was on his priority list. He didn't do that like some of the others. And of the others, did any others stand out for you? Um, all a little bit different. Mika was very similar to Ayrton. We kind of knew fairly early on that we weren't going to keep him for very long. We weren't in a very good place in terms of our competitiveness, so it was pretty clear that Mika would go somewhere as soon as he got a sniff. Johnny was a, just a great guy to have on the team. I wouldn't say Johnny was particularly mechanically sympathetic, and he probably thumped me for that, but <laughs> he, he wasn't He wasn't super mechanically sympathetic, but super quick, you know, and, and Johnny was one of those guys who through all the trauma that he went through, still got it to the point where in the right car, Johnny would have won. And I really believe that. And the same with Martin Donnelly. I think both of them had everything that you needed, that those ingredients to win. But you've got to have the car, you know, as you know, you've got to have the right car at the right time as well. So I think, you know, Johnny and Martin weren't, weren't in that, they weren't in that fortunate position. When Johnny was at Benetton with Michael, that, that's, that strength was there but he was never going to be allowed to finish in front of Michael. And uh, Michael, same day, same car, Michael's probably got the edge, but Johnny was never going to be was never going to be given the edge in terms of team support because they were, Benetton was Lion Lotus, really. They were a, a team which had a number one driver and, and a good a good second driver. But when you think what both, well, what Johnny went through and still managed to race in, and win in Formula One, it's amazing. And Martin, unfortunately, didn't get quite that far on his journey. How tough, I mean, obviously safety has changed like monumentously over the years, but those eras, like how tough was it for for you guys to deal with the losses? Well, until, until Martin's accident, I hadn't experienced it firsthand. So the first real experience I had with was when Elio was killed at Ricard. And we'd finished testing the day before and I was at the hotel. I had breakfast at the hotel with Richard, another one of the mechanics, and Ayrton. There's just three of us, that was all that was left. We'd finished our testing. Some of the other teams were still going. And Ayrton left, so I'm gonna I'm going off to the track. So he went off. Richard and I had finished breakfast. We hung around at the hotel sitting by the pool, in fact, uh, waiting you know, for, for the point when we're going to go off and fly home in the, in in that evening. And, I don't know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock, Ayrton came walking back around the pool side and we see why is, why is he back? And he'd come back to say that, you know, Elio had had a, had a big accident and think he was going to make it. So that was the first experience I'd had with, with that kind of thing happening in Formula One, but it was with another team. So 
the impact was significant. And I remember sitting at the airport on the way home and somehow Mansell was there. I think Derek Warwick was there. I can't remember. There was an, an, an our crew and some of the other guys and we were kind of just sitting in the departure lounge. And the guys are, you know, I remember Mansell being quite vocal about, you know, the safety and what had happened today. And that's a, that was a really surreal situation to be in because we didn't really know what had happened. And it was it was just being talked about in the terminal. And as me, as a fairly young man, early part of my career, in the middle of these guys, these drivers talking about um, the, the accident that happened that day. So it was in a Brabham and it was a, a test day. When it's right on your doorstep, the Martin's accident, my car, and I remember being on the pit wall with Frank Durney, who was our race engineer, and we were looking at the sector times and Martin had blitzed his first sector, he'd blitzed the second sector, and we were like, oh no, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be a good lap. And the red flag came out, and our immediate reaction was, uh, someone's shunted, someone's gone off and screwed our lap. And then all the cars started to come back down the pit lane. And you're looking and you're waiting, and yours doesn't come back. And then we kind of realised, well, it's Martin that's crashed then. So I walked out the back of the of the of the garage and across the paddock and I met Ayrton coming the other way and we stopped kind of face to face and he never said anything and I never said anything and then I realised we didn't need to say anything there'd been a big accident and it was Martin that was involved with it so I carried on walking Ayrton went back to the to the box and then I got to the fence and saw what was the remains of our car five, ten minutes earlier I'd strapped Martin into it there's a whole lot of people standing around what was obviously Martin and lying in the middle of the track, although I couldn't see him. And uh, looking at the car and what was left of it, I was, as probably everybody else thought, there's no way that he's going to be alive. You know, he just, how did he survive that? I, after this day, I don't know how he survived it. And they took him to the medical centre. I remember Clive's sister, Sarah, was there. And she came up and put her arm around me and said, you're okay? And I was like, well, actually, because when people say, you're okay, we all say yes, don't we? But yeah, I'm okay. But I really wasn't okay. And I'm sure there was a whole lot of people in the garage that day who weren't okay. And then we got word that actually he was still alive. So I went to the medical center and there wasn't any way I was getting anywhere close to seeing him. And... Then the next thing is the helicopter took off and took him to Seville. Um, I didn't see him again until he was in Whitechapel. So he had a, um, somehow he survived that, and it's just it's a miracle that he did get out of that. And uh, and he's still around. He was in, he was here, he was here this afternoon, just popped in. He's back again tomorrow for something. We have a Lotus Garden party at East Carlton Manor coming up on the 20th of May, and, uh, and Martin's coming along to that, and he's a remarkable story. I'm very pleased and privileged to still have him as a friend who's walking around after what was, you know, he'd stopped functioning. Sid Watkins saved his life on the track. That's incredible. So, yeah, it was. It was a. It was a. Um, it was a tricky time. He made a comeback, didn't he? He had another drive in a in a Formula One car once he'd recovered. So he was he was in Whitechapel until Valentine's Day, 1991, and then he went to Willie Dungle's clinic. Uh, where Nicky Lauda was was when he went through his recovery, and Martin had a go, but he wasn't. You know, it, it was a 
it was a more a psychological thing to help Martin through the trauma, I think, than anything else, because he was he wasn't going to be racing in Formula One again. Um, but then he did, you know, he did his own. He had his own set up his own form of um, Vauxhall Lotus team and in Formula Three and had a successful business running cars. And you know, from time to time, he'll he still got in a race and and did a couple of races. And now he's he's most of his time is tuition now. He teaches people to drive race cars and to enjoy their own cars on track days and stuff. And he's very much a guy who lives every day for each day. Um, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. That era was just. It was just so hard, wasn't it? There was just so many unfortunate incidents. I think that when you look at those cars, Martin's car to Williams that died in, they were so exposed and that was just how it was. And we were all, well, mechanics were all concentrating on bolting together safely. The designers were all trying to make them go as fast as possible. And yes, there were safety. We had crash tests for the front but we didn't have side impact squeeze tests. The guys were extremely vulnerable because their head's sitting out the top of the cockpit and the cars got smaller and smaller and smaller, so they got more and more exposed. Uh, Martin suffered that accident and the car was completely destroyed. When Ayrton had his accident, the chassis itself was nowhere near as badly damaged as, as Martin's car was, but Ayrton took a crump to the head and Martin didn't. So with... With what they have now, with the seats that they sit in, the extraction, the halo, you know, we we think, oh, now now it's now we're fine. And then Roman Grosjean has that accident, so you know we're still we're still not fine. It's still a dangerous sport, but without that risk, then uh, some of that adrenaline that goes through us all, I think, would you know, if it was a hundred percent safe, it wouldn't have the same attraction. I agree, unfortunately. It's part of the story, isn't it? The jeopardy in F1 is what, what people love watching. Not to that extent, of course, but uh, the drama is part of it all and always has been. And coming up next weekend is Imola. And I wonder how that feels for you. Thankfully, I wasn't there. Um, so, again, it was... I can remember where I was that day. I remember watching the race and when they didn't put him in the helicopter for 25 minutes or whatever it was, you, you know then, if, you're, if, if, if you've been involved, you know that that's pretty serious. It's a, you know, he, he needs, if it's there for that long, that's a lot of stabilising that's going on to try, and, to try and keep somebody going. So I kind of knew the outcome, I think, wasn't going to be a very favourable one. I haven't sat there watch it on the big screen and yeah I've been back to Imola or I've been to Imola since um, and prior but I wasn't there that day so or that weekend Positively a little birdie told me that you have quite a fun story about well that Senna invited some of the team to go water skiing in Brazil and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that well we did we um we used to go to Brazil in January, testing for a week. Then we come home. Then we go back in February, come home, and then we go back in March and we test for a week. Then there was a rule then that you couldn't test a week before the Grand Prix. So we had a little bit of downtime, and then said, "Let's." Um, I've got a house just up the road, and I've got a ski boat and a jet ski. And um, so anyone want to come? Some of the crew didn't, but some of us, some of us went. And he said, "Right, well, I'll pick you up." It was some godly hour. 
that he wanted to pick us up in the morning and it was dark and it was pouring with rain. And he came to our hotel and he drove our VW Combi minibus from, from Rio to a place called Buba Tuba, which is where this house was. And it was about three hours up the road. And we pulled into a gas station and he checked the tyre pressures. I mean, we never checked the tyre pressure. We don't check our tyre pressures on our own car, let alone a rental car. But he checked the tyre pressures and he chucked some drinks, I think, in the car with, and, and he drove. And he just drove this thing and we're all, you know, we're, we were on vacation and our chauffeur was the greatest racing driver of all time. And he checked us into this hotel and the next day we got out into this little bay and he got the boat and the jet ski out and we went water skiing and I was with Nicky who still works here with me now. He was on the jet ski and you could put two people on it but that was at the time where the second guy had to kind of jump up on the back once it had just started going. It wasn't big enough or strong enough to put two. So I jumped on as the as the jet ski hit a trough in the water. So I was like in mid-air and as it came back I landed on it on my ribs and broke them. So the uh, that was the end of my um, water skiing and jet skiing activities for that weekend. And then I had to spend the next week at the Brazilian Grand Prix, hardly been able to sleep, only been able to lay on one side because I'd got the really painful ribs. So yes, that was a <laughs> that was quite an experience, a bit of fun. And I also, um, well, actually, just on that, was Ayrton as good at water skiing and jet skiing? As he is, well, you know, probably not quite as much as he was behind the wheel, but I imagine he was pretty handy. He was pretty handy, yeah. Yeah, we could do it. We could get up and, and ski, but he was, uh, even on a choppy seawaters, he was, you know, he was good at that as well. Model airplane flying, he was really good at that. He was pretty good at anything he did, I think. Just <laughs> one of those annoying people who is just good at stuff. Um, obviously, we've touched on the safety element of Formula One and, and motorsport in general, but has that been, or do you think that has been the most significant change? Do you still enjoy watching Formula One? Um, I do I do still enjoy watching it, and I, if I'm at home, I'll watch it. Generally, I will always record it, and so I watch most of them. I might not watch them from start to finish, but it, it's so far away from... It was how it was when I did it. So it's really difficult to say whether it's better. I never, I try not to say it's better or worse. It's different and it is very different. And for me, we still have to a degree an involvement because over the years you meet people, you make friends and some are still in Formula One and those kind of contacts have made it possible for us to go to some of the events. We've raced at some of the events. We've supplied cars to the Grand Prix, to Formula One for for promo things and for for activities that they're doing at the track so for me it's more now when we go about the people who are still there and old friends you can catch up with and um, and have a you know have a have a chat about the past and do the stories like we're doing today Alex where you you, you're just kind of going back and living that dream again uh, with your old mates. And it is such a small world, isn't it, the motorsport world? Like, anyone in motorsport understands it, but anyone out of motorsport don't don't quite get it, I don't think, do they? <laughs> There's a whole ethos on how you go about getting the job done. And when I started in it, I wanted to do it for so long, there was no way. I was on a three-month probation, and there was no way I was going to fail. There was, I, was, I wrote everything down in a book that they taught me 
And one guy, Hugh Wright in Subassembly, he taught me how to set up uprights, how to build all these car parts and components. And I went home and I wrote it in a book every night because I wasn't going to fail. Once you get that um, dedication to making sure that you cover every little bit, and back then with a team of 100 people at Lotus, that's, that's, that's all it was. In fact, probably less when I started. You didn't have that culture where, well, someone above me, someone in a different room is making that. And, you know, we had to make bits sometimes. So we did a lot more than each individual's do in Formula One teams now. The difference now, of course, is the things never break down. You know, you're really unfortunate if something breaks down in Formula One today. And back in those days, they did. You know, we made things not by CNC machine, but by hand. And, you know, the engines, we all thought, the new, when we got Renault engine, we thought, wow, the technology in that turbo engine compared with the Ford DFV that we'd had before is amazing. We've got one apart on the bench at the moment, a V6 Renault, and the technology that that's in that is is it's not that much different to the year before the Cosworth. Whereas now, with batteries and blocks that are machined out of solid, you know, we we thought then leading technology things still had mechanical fuel injection on a turbo engine when we first had them. You wouldn't dream of of entering into that, and we wouldn't have dreamed of taking a Renault engine apart in 1985 or 1984. We just wouldn't. But we've got one on the bench with a head off it because we wanted to have a look at something inside. And to think, well, what was it, the 80s, that an engine would do one qualifying and that would be it? Yeah, well, <laughs> the, at, the, at the end of pre-restrictions, so 1986, when there was there were no restrictions on engines uh, other than the fuel consumption during the race. So with Renault, we had low compression engines with big turbos so you could get more boost, more power, and a massively high fuel consumption, but for qualifying, it didn't matter. And we used to take a wastegate off and put a blank cap over it. So you had terminal boost. There was no control over the boost. Whatever the turbo would spin out and generate boost through the compressor into the engine would go in. And we had five bar of boost. And the dyno at Renault went up to, to 1,000 horsepower, and these engines in qualifying trim exceeded that. And they, did, they didn't know how powerful they were. They estimated about 1,200 horsepower with the Renault and 1,400 with the BMW, four-cylinder. So for qualifying, we had two sets of tyres, no wastegates, and we changed turbos in the session as well as tyres because they had the tendency of being at such capacity and stressed so much that you know they they could they just could blow up a turbo during quality. So we put new turbos on, new tyres, and then for the race... The race had a high compression engine and much smaller turbos because we had a limit on how much fuel we could use. So there were two completely different cars for qualifying and racing in terms of the horsepower. It's no wonder that was sort of when we really saw the, the real blisteringly quick cars as well. It was, for us, as mechanics, were fantastic times because it was so exciting. You know, three guys on each side of the car with big long gloves on, two of us changing the turbo, which is, wasn't red hot, but it had been, and someone else with a watering can just keeping our gloves cool. And, you know, it was a, it was something like a 12, you know, if we did it in more than 12 minutes, we'd been slacking. Could do the whole thing in 12 minutes. I think that was a number. Oh, my God. I just, that's just, it's just so different, isn't it? <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Pit stops when we first started doing them in 83, we had a pair, we had, we actually had racing driver's boots on, which had leather soles. We had a single layer fire suit and a balaclava on a pair of gloves. That was it. And then 
when we increased our levels of safety, the refueling guys had a helmet, I think, and a fireproof suit, a three-layer, but the, the rest of us didn't. We had to get out of the way. Wow. We didn't have speed limits in the pit lane. No, of course. Just flat out, as fast as you can go. And at Zandvoort, and I've been to Zandvoort so many times since, but at Zandvoort, René Arlou had to change down at the end of the pit lane to make it into the first corner. So he'd got they were the first or second garage in and he came out and he was flat out down the pit lane and when he got to the end he had to change down to get round Talzan. The pit exit's really close to the first corner. It was it was absolutely unbelievable. And we sat out there, we didn't have radios either. So we sat out in the pits for the entire race with our wheel gun on our tires, waiting just in case they came in. When someone else came in, we just had to get out of the way a little bit. Zambor was a really narrow pit lane as well, one of the one of the narrowest pit lanes. But we knew we had you know, you knew that they're coming in at a hundred mile an hour or more. You could keep out of the way. You must have laughed when um was it last weekend? Was it in Miami or, or or Melbourne when I think it was Lewis, wasn't it, who came into the pit lane and, and there wasn't enough warning when he was coming in, so there were quite a lot of personnel on the pit lane and stuff. You must have watched that and been like, come on, guys. <laughs> well, the radios as well, you know, so they could all talk to each other. But we just, um, yeah, we, we didn't have that luxury. One day in Monte Carlo, I remember sitting in the pits all, and at Monaco, it's so noisy, and but we didn't even have ear protection in those days. We just sat there and listened to it. And Watty, Colin Watts, one of the guys who he did the right front. We'd had a really late night. He was. We were all tired. And Watty had actually nodded off during the race. So there's all this noise going around. And he he just you could see him falling asleep while sitting on his wheel. So we all got our, and we saw it. So all the rest of the guys, we got our wheel guns and did a pull the trigger. So they all rattled, <laughs> which woke Watty up. He took off 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 the chip off the tire that he was sitting on because he thought, oh, the guns are going, the car's coming in. But of course, it was no car; it was just us waking him up. <laughs> Is there any driver that you didn't get to work with but wish you had? That's a good question. Never been asked that one before. Uh, I think the only person that I would have liked to 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 have done that would have been Nicky Lauda because I just he he was just he was different and such a clever man. I suppose in some respects he had a similar approach that Ayrton had compared with, you know, if you watch Rush, the movie, there was a chick flick, but it was a really good chick flick, which blokes could watch as well. And it really set James Hunt as a drinking, smoking, womanising dude against Nicky Lauda, and they both won. So, I don't know, I think, I remember where I was when Nicky had his accident in the Nürburgring, and that was way before I was involved with Formula One, and it's... So yes, I think if I want, if I if I had to pick somebody who I'd like to have worked with, it would have been Nicky Lauda. Is there anything that you would have done if it wasn't motorsports? Ooh, don't know. I wanted to be a rally mechanic when I was when I first got in, in, interested in it. I wanted to be a rally mechanic, and I I did some rallying, navigating, and I did some preparation on a car, um, and I did a few rallies myself in a car, and then. I've seen Formula One and I thought nine in a puddle in the middle of the night in Dolby Forest in North Yorkshire or nice warm pits in Rio de Janeiro. I think I think I might have switched direction here and go to Formula One instead of what instead of rally cars. So but other than that, no, not really. You've obviously done a lot of driving yourself. Do you think that had you had the opportunity you would have wanted to 
really pursue that as a career? No, no, I would never have been good enough. And that was, I think that's a, that's a boy childhood dream. I want to be a racing driver, but there was a reality to that, which was never, never going to be. And I, I've raced a little bit in historics and, and enjoyed it. And then the new kids on the block come and all, and then I'm not competitive and I couldn't afford to fix the car if I totaled it. And all those things all add up. So I would have, um, no, I was, I've been lucky enough to drive a lot of stuff, but I wouldn't put me down as being a, a racing driver, test driver. Yeah, okay. If I could have done something else, actually, I would have liked to have been a musician. That's what I'd have liked to have done. What would you have played? I'd play guitar anyway, so I would have played that. We had a Formula One band called the Pit Stop Boogie Boys, and um, and I was a founder member of that. So we used to play gigs at the end of the Grand Prix when we were on flyaways and stuff. But who was in it? Uh, James Allen was in it. A guy called Eddie Taylor really was the founder. He was the drummer. Paul Leger was the bass player. Uh, there was a guy called Tiz from Goodyear Tires. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy from Tyrrell who played the harmonica on occasion. I can't remember his name. But yeah, so it was a, the Pit Stop Boogie Boys. We played at Eddie Jordan's factory when he opened it. And the, the invitation to the guests was the new Jordan factory's opening and the, the Pit Stop Boogie Boys are the band supported by Gina Washington and the Ram Jam Band. <laughs> so even the headline and Gina Washington was sort of the support act to us. That's just the way it was marketed. Interesting hearing you talking about yourself as not competitive and yet that was, you know, one of the things that you really, you know, obviously all the drivers generally have that in common. But is there anything else or is there anything that you learnt about yourself when you worked with the likes of Senna? I think that because of how Formula One was when I joined it, I think we learned to work hard, but we learned to party hard as well. And we learned to have a lot of fun. We had a lot of practical jokes, a lot of things which we did for a laugh, which included sometimes poor old hire cars. And we were we were quite good at making acetylene bombs, which were really loud explosions of, um, of mixed up gas, which we used to set off in the middle of the night or behind the Williams garage in particular, because we knew how Alan Chalice hated it. So we had a lot of fun. And I thought that possibly we might have been more successful if we had had the McLaren approach of you're not allowed to do any of that which is what it's like now we used to go to the bar after the race they go to the gym now I think you you could argue that we might have had more success if we hadn't been playing around as you know like we used to some of the things we got up to we had diggers going beachcombers going on Zandvoort Beach and we had a digger going at in the paddock at in uh, Estoril and well, we could talk for a long while on the things that we weren't meant to do in motor racing that's sure <laughs> and looking back on your career is there anything that you would have done differently or any opportunities that you wish you'd pursued uh, no I don't think there was I had not asked me if I wanted to go to McLaren with him and I thought long and hard about that but I, my family was in Norfolk Lotus had given me the opportunity which I wanted for for so long and I liked I liked where I was I liked what I was doing but at that time I wasn't a new boy at Lotus I'd been there for a little while and I had you know I felt like I was really part of the team and that I contributed and I wanted to stay there so at that time I had no idea where my career was going otherwise other than I was going to stay at Team Lotus having now had the benefit of being 
working for Clive for so many years and, and achieving what we have with this business, I definitely would. If I, I wouldn't have changed it. I might not have partied so much. I would have liked to won a few more races in Formula One. But other than that, I think I would... Con- what I've done, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed and still do. So what's, what projects are Classic Team Lotus working on at the moment and what what's to come? Uh, we've got a couple of Lotus 47s in the workshop, which are Europa racing cars, which is kind of new stuff to us. Um, we've really focused on single seaters in the main. Um, so they're 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 quite uh, they're quite good fun. Uh, Lotus is now owned by a Chinese company called Geely, who have, have expressed massive interest in the heritage. So we've done some nice cars. We made some cars for them, and uh, we've made some a lot of stuff for the F1 exhibition, which is on tour now at the moment in Madrid at the moment. So that's still open. They've extended it in fact because it's been really popular. So that's uh, staying in Madrid until the middle of July. And think then it's going to Milan. It's a big ten-year project of of stuff, and so we made a lot of a lot of stuff for them because the history of Formula One, um, the early part involved a lot of Lotus, so chassis, you know, the first monocoque, the first dressed engine, the first this, the first that. Um, so they focused on us quite a lot, which is really really great, and they've done a fabulous job with the exhibition. Um, so well worth going to have a look when it comes to to your country. Um, so we've done a, made a load of stuff for that. We've got we we pretty much do everything in house now. So we paint stuff now. We manufacture carbon composite stuff, fabricate stuff, and we put it all together and we take it to the track. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And people can come and see it, can't they? People can come and see it. Yep, they can come and have a look round at um, the, the crown jewels, which are all sitting upstairs. We'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. And what car are you likely to get behind the wheel next? Next, a likelihood. I'm just looking out into the workshop to see what there is out there, which I'm going to drive next. Uh, it'll probably be one of the 47s, actually. I think it'll be the next one I go and test. Well, I'm not at all jealous. I've been very lucky. Well, thank you for your participation in, uh, in the world of Formula One and the world of motorsport, of course. It's... Uh, Incredible to hear your story. Alex, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Get Closer by the Geneva International Motor Show, a podcast where influential personalities from the automotive landscape share their passion. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review and make sure to subscribe to this series on your favorite podcast platform.